0: It's December 2002, and winter is starting to wrap its arms around the town of Roswell, New Mexico. There's a bite in the air that even the bright sunshine can't banish, but former First Lieutenant Walter Hout has far more important things on his mind today than navigating an icy sidewalk. The doorbell chimes right on time. He makes his way slowly to the front door of his single-story house on West 7th Street. A pair of shadowy shapes shift on his porch behind the screen door. Nothing sinister about his visitors, though. His daughter Julie's smiling face greets him as he opens the door, and his arms envelop her in a warm embrace. Behind her stands a man. Not family, but someone he has come to call a friend over the past 15 years. Don Schmidt is an art graduate whose career took an unexpected turn. He is an avid believer in the existence of extraterrestrial life a former director at the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, author of hundreds of articles about UFOs, and leader of no fewer than four archaeological digs at the alleged Roswell crash site. Schmidt has dedicated decades to finding out the truth behind the Roswell incident, and countless others. That journey led him to Houtsdoor, and the two have bonded over a shared interest in everything UFO-related. Today isn't a social visit though. Today is the culmination of a series of conversations the three of them have had. This hasn't been an easy decision for Hout. After a lifetime of relative silence, he's the last man standing from a very select group who were there on the base back in 1947 when the story hit. Time has taken many of his brothers in arms away, a few of which have tried to have their say on what happened in Roswell back then. How is painfully aware that if he doesn't speak now, what he knows will die with him. He invites them to sit on the sofa, smiles at Don, and tells him it's time. He's ready to talk, but it has to be on his terms. He will tell it all, unedited and unadulterated, but it cannot be released to the public until after his death. That could be years away, but it's a hard line in the sand for him. He's kept quiet all these years out of a sense of honor and duty to another friend now long dead. Colonel William Blanchard, his former commanding officer, and the man in charge at Roswell base in July 1947. Schmidt hides his disappointment at having to wait a little longer, but the excitement of finally convincing Hout to share what he knows far outweighs that. They talk through details of how and when it will be shared, and as much as Schmidt is dying to know right away, he respects his old friend's wishes. Schmidt agrees to leave Hout and Julie alone so they can make a start. Over the days that follow, Julie sits with her dad, poring over the written account he has given, word by word, sentence by sentence. They need to make sure what he's saying is clear and unequivocal. Hout won't be around to respond to any questions or clarify any ambiguity when it's made public. When it's finished, Julie makes an appointment for him to meet with a local notary, to have it witnessed and sealed. For now, it will stay between the two of them, a daughter finally learning about her dad's moment in the spotlight, a passing of the torch of sorts. It will be another three years until Walter Hout passes away on December 15th, 2005 a death that grants Julie permission to share his affidavit with Don Schmidt. Longer still until it's shared publicly, Schmidt will use it as the centerpiece of his best-selling book, Witness to Roswell, published in 2007, and what it contains is a long way away from the Army's explanation. Explosive enough to reignite the debate and pose the eternal question once again, what really crashed in the New Mexico desert all those years ago? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Walter Haut, of the words he wrote before he died about an incident in 1947 that turned into one of the most infamous conspiracy theories of all time. A small New Mexico town that became the focal point of global attention. A military that some say kept secrets from their own most trusted officers, some of whom claim they were bullied and threatened into silence. Men of honor torn between keeping their oath to core and country and sharing their stories of what they say happened decades ago in and around the Roswell base. And a sworn affidavit, the contents of which, if true, trumps any version of events that came before it, claiming to answer a number of questions once and for all. Did aliens crash in the New Mexico desert? And did the military orchestrate the biggest cover-up known to man to keep it from us? I'm Estefania Hakeman, and this Capella University's FlexPath format. You can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity, with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. The Roswell incident, as it became known, took place in the summer of 1947. A New Mexico rancher named Mac Brazel Sparked the controversy when he came into town, claiming to have found debris from some sort of unknown craft. The Army sent their intelligence officer, Major Jesse Marcel, to investigate. Marcel went to the alleged crash site, miles away from any town. In some accounts, the debris was spread over an area the size of a football field. Brazil brought back boxes full of the confounding materials to Roswell Base, where public information officer, Walter G. Hout, issued a statement proclaiming the capture of a flying saucer. The stage is set for this to be one of, if not the most, significant events in human history. But when the Army changed their assessment, claiming it's nothing more than a weather balloon, the news fizzled out. It faded like an old photograph, only living on in the memories of those who were there. It's likely it might have stayed that way if not for the interest of one man. Stanton Friedman was a nuclear physicist by trade, but he left his chosen field in 1970 to focus full-time on his passion, researching and investigating flying saucers. He was dedicated, driven, and tenacious, lecturing at over 600 colleges across 50 states and publishing more than 80 papers on the subject. He was even asked to provide testimony to congressional hearings and invited to speak at the United Nations. When Stanton Friedman spoke, people listened. In February 1978, Friedman was presented with a unique opportunity, a chance to interview Major Jesse Marcel, the man who had recovered the debris near Roswell back in 1947. Jesse Marcel is no ordinary witness. He's a war hero, a former intelligence officer, a man who spent much of his life on the inside of a select circle of trust, dealing with matters of national security. His reputation is stellar. Marcel is later named in Walter Hout's affidavit. According to Hout's statement, he and Marcel were both present at the daily staff meeting on the morning of July 8, 1947. He is uniquely placed, according to Hout, to comment on what went down and comment he does When Friedman asks Marcel about what happened all those years ago, he knows there's every chance that it might be a repeat of the weather balloon story, but his own research has left him with unanswered questions flickering around his head. He's determined to probe Marcel's account and put the former intelligence officer under the spotlight. Marcel's answers take him by surprise. After decades of stonewalling, he opens up, telling Friedman that he is convinced that whatever he found in the field was, in his words, not of this earth. Whatever switch has flipped in Marcel's head to make him break ranks, he remains true to this change of heart. Subsequent interviews, even television appearances, follow. Marcel becomes more outspoken with each one. He explains how even he, in the trusted position as intelligence officer, was systematically boxed in, silenced, despite his rank and standing. In 1980, he goes back to where it all began, to where he, Mac Brazel, and Captain Sheridan Cavett collected boxfuls of debris that became the center of a conspiracy. It's the tail end of summer 1980, and the September sun hangs low on the horizon, streaming over the dirty brown scrubland. Flat, featureless plains stretch for miles, fit for grazing only the hardiest of livestock. There's no sign of life, nothing moving except for a small cloud kicked up a few miles down the dirt track. What starts out looking like a dust devil gradually clears as three cars come into focus. Although it's a desolate corner of the state, it's used for visitors. 33 years ago, this barren plot of land was the focus of the world. The site where, some believe, an alien spacecraft crashed. Claims of a government cover-up have resurfaced these past few years, largely thanks to Jesse Marcel, who now stares out of a dusty window in the first of three trucks that slow to a halt. It's the first time Marcel has been back to this spot since 1947. He has returned today to take part in the popular TV series, In Search Of. His knees creak almost as much as the door as he opens it and steps out onto the dry, baked earth. Marcel isn't a young man anymore. Could be that his declining health has played a factor in him making this pilgrimage today. Six years from now, he will lose his battle with emphysema. But what he says today will live on long beyond that. He strolls off, away from his truck, as a camera crew climbs out of the others, setting up tripods, checking the light. He paces over patchy grassland, almost as if he's walking in his own footsteps from decades ago. The crew leaves him to his reverie, not wanting to intrude on his trip down memory lane. It looks like he's on a slow treasure hunt as he picks his way across the plains, stopping only when he reaches a pronounced furrow. The scar on the landscape is where the craft is said to have made contact, gouging a gash in the ground. When the crew is ready for him, they call him back, and he starts to talk, dredging up memories of days gone by. He tells his tale in a voice born from a Louisiana bayou. They took pictures, of course, he says of the day in General Ramey's office in Fort Worth, where he was made to pose with debris. They wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. He stares down the camera as he talks, no hint of nerves or anything other than perfect recall. So all I could do was keep my mouth shut. General Ramey is the one who told a newsman what it was and to forget about it. There's a wry smile at the mention of the general's instructions. It was nothing more than a weather balloon, he says, echoing the general's words to the press. He delivers the next line with an amused look, like it's a private joke. It's a throwback to the expression he wears in the photos from 1947 in Ramey's office. Of course, we both knew differently, says Marcel. I had never seen anything like that before. It was not anything from this earth. Before his death in 1986, Marcel also spoke to Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt. Authors of the bestseller Witness to Roswell. He walks them through the events of July 1947, starting with his journey out to the debris field near Corona, collecting it up and transporting it to Fort Worth. He fills in yet more gaps as to the cloak of secrecy that was thrown around the base. For starters, there's a press conference that follows his photo shoot alongside the debris, but Marcel, the man who has spent more time around it than anyone, isn't invited. Not only that, but he's kept in seclusion at Fort Worth for the next 24 hours while the news story settles over the front pages. Only after this time out, he is allowed to return to Roswell. When he arrives back on base, he goes to see Captain Cavett, his sidekick in the debris collection run. Marcel recounts the conversation. I want to see the report of what happened here while I was at Fort Worth, he tells Cavett. What report, says Cavett? I don't know what you're talking about. I outrank you, Marcel reminds Cavett. The captain shrugs in return. Sorry, I take my orders from Washington. If you don't like it, you can take it up with them. In one of his final interviews, Marcel is quoted as saying, I haven't told everything. There's a hell of a lot I haven't said. I'm a trained intelligence officer. Once you do that, it's with you for life. In capping off Jesse Marcel's involvement in the Roswell incident, consider this. The official story of it being a weather balloon requires us to believe that Marcel made a mistake, that he did not recognize the debris he spent a whole day collecting for what it was, an ordinary run-of-the-mill balloon. For that to hold weight, Jesse Marcel needs to have experienced a massive error of judgment and not recognized materials he had trained extensively with a highly unlikely supposition. Marcel passed away from emphysema in 1986, taking any other revelations he may have kept in reserve with him. Marcel's is the first, but by no means the last voice to speak out. It's as if those that follow feel more comfortable knowing that they are not the only ones. A dam has burst. A slew of deathbed confessions emerge in the late 70s and early 80s from those who served with Hout back then, as the primary actors in the Roswell event reached their twilight years. Here are just a few. Corporal Robert Lyda had been an MP stationed at Roswell back in 1947. After he died in 1995, his wife, Wanda, shared a conversation they had after watching a TV show about Roswell. She claims Lida turned to her, saying, Well, I suppose it's about time I should tell you. I've been meaning to for a long time. It's true. Lida shared with Wanda his recollections from back then, that he had been ordered to stand guard at a hangar. From his post, he claimed to have been able to see wreckage of some sort of craft. He also tells her that he also saw a number of small bodies recovered from the wreck asked if she believed him, Wanda answered, absolutely, he was telling me the truth when he knew he didn't have much longer. Sergeant Homer Rowlett was a member of the 603rd Engineering Squadron stationed at Roswell. He left the military with an exemplary service record, 26 years without a single blemish. He didn't utter a word about what he saw way back in 1947. When he was on his deathbed in 1988 though, His son shared that Homer allegedly confessed that he was part of the cleanup crews sent to the crash site. Homer spent days following the weather balloon story, collecting debris on the plains north of Roswell. He tells his son about a thin metallic foil that he calls memory material for its ability to retain its shape no matter how hard he tried to bend it. He also describes the ship it came from, saying it was circular in shape. The final part of his confession takes his already shocked son by surprise. I saw three little people, Homer tells him. They had large heads and at least one was alive. Two of Homer's former squad members tell their families almost identical accounts of the days spent picking through debris. Private First Class James Sane and Master Sergeant Harry Telesco tell stories that corroborate both the types of debris Homer describes and the body sprawled amongst the wreckage. In 1986, as Sergeant Melvin Brown lay on his deathbed in London, his daughter Beverly says her father talked about little else. It was not a damn weather balloon, he tells her. Although his wife and eldest daughter refused to discuss it, Beverly said her father wanted his last words to be shared. He paints a stark picture of what he saw. Everything was being loaded into trucks, he allegedly said to her. And I couldn't understand why some of the trucks had ice in them. I didn't understand what they wanted to keep cold. Our orders were not to look. I pulled back the covering. There were bodies, small bodies, and they had big heads and slanted eyes. It's 1991, 44 years after the Roswell incident. For a little over a decade now, thanks to Jesse Marcel's confession, the town has become something of a mecca for UFO enthusiasts. His interviews have rekindled a long dormant spark of curiosity, one well beyond just local interest. Visitors have traveled here from all over the world in the 13 years since Stanton Friedman spoke with Marcel and boosted the Roswell conspiracy theory into the mainstream spotlight, a flow that shows no sign of stopping. A good number of UFO enthusiasts have made the pilgrimage, but it's no coincidence that they've chosen today to be here. The focus of their attention is a two-story building on Main Street, once a theater back in the 20s. Where movie billboards once proclaimed the latest releases, new signage has appeared these past few weeks. In place of movie stars' faces are oversized heads, more bulbous in shape than that of a human. Pale green faces and slanted eyes stare out at passersby. Some of the locals going about their business shake their heads as they walk past. Others join the queue, wearing t-shirts, sporting flying saucers, and little green men. Today is the grand opening of the International UFO Museum and Research Center. Inside is a library containing over 50,000 documents, photos, tapes, and reports. The ultimate candy shop for the enthusiasts waiting in the midday sunshine. There are only minutes until the doors are open to the public for the first time. Pulling all this together has been a labor of love for the three founders. The first is Max Little, a real estate broker, who helped procure the premises. The remaining two have a personal connection to the Roswell incident. Glenn Dennis was a young man at the time of the incident. He worked at Ballard's funeral home, less than a mile from where the museum now stands, as a mortician. Dennis tells anyone who will listen about a call he took while at work, back in July 1947. It affords him a certain celebrity status amongst those queuing and he wanders out front to chat while attendees wait for the agreed time to cut the ribbon and open the doors. The caller was the mortuary officer at the Roswell base. The officer wanted to know how to procure her medically sealed coffins and had questions about preserving bodies that had been exposed to the elements for some days. Dennis recounts to avid listeners that curiosity got the better of him. He drove to the base, where he saw chunks of what looked like the wreckage of a craft protruding from a military ambulance. He tried to pass off his visit as official business, going to see a nurse he knew at the base hospital, but was forced to leave by an irate MP. The adoring looks he gets from the UFO-obsessed fans wear off when the final founder of the museum shows up. They stare at him, talking in hushed tones as the man walks towards them, telling Dennis they have two minutes to the grand opening. The name of the third man who has invested his energy, heart, and soul to bring this museum to life is none other than former First Lieutenant Walter G. Hout. It will still be a full decade before Hout reveals all. In the meantime, though, his companion on that July day in 1947, Sheridan Cavett, is about to have his own moment in the spotlight. Cavett's legacy puts him on the institutional side of the fence. After years of growing speculation, fueled by the spate of former servicemen unburdening themselves as their lives slipped away, voices in the government speak out, demanding a full investigation. In January 1994, Congressman Stephen Schiff requests that the General Accounting Office, or GAO, the investigative branch of Congress, head up a full-scale audit. The Secretary of the Air Force, Sheila Widnall, orders any and all documentation that relates to the alleged incident to be located and shared. There is only one man left alive who is universally agreed to have been involved with recovering the debris. Sheridan Cavett. In advance of being interviewed, the Air Force wants to preempt any cries of cover-up. So the Secretary of the Air Force gives Cavett authorization to discuss any and all classified information he knows. Cavett, when asked, describes collecting material that resembled balloon debris. In addition, Cavett tells investigators of a black box they recovered along with the other fragments. It's this last part that plays a significant role in the eventual findings. Since the scope of the investigation included weather balloons, details soon emerge of highly classified work from the 40s, known as Project Mogul. It had been so strictly managed that most participants never knew the full scale of it beyond the part they played. Project Mogul was created to detect Soviet nuclear tests by monitoring low-frequency acoustics in the upper atmosphere. The means of monitoring this? Enormous high-altitude balloons. Several members of the team are still alive at the time of the inquiry, including the project engineer, Professor Charles Moore. Moore shares project logs from June and July of 1947. The first high-altitude data-gathering balloon was launched on June 4, 1947, and the team believes it is debris from this very balloon that the rancher found on his property. The balloons used in Project Mogul were the first of their kind, many times larger than any other object in the sky and made of a hyper-durable plastic called polythene. In fact, These enormous round shimmering objects were so often confused for flying saucers that Project Mogul used sightings to supplement early balloon tracking techniques. Moore also describes materials used in the manufacture of early models. In addition to polythene, the balloons were made of aluminum foil backed paper and balsa wood beams adorned with purplish pink tape with symbols on it. If you'll recall. This describes almost exactly the debris that was found and inspected by Jesse Marcel on the ranch in Roswell, and was shared in secrecy with his young son during the quiet cover of the night in his home before dropping it off at base. In addition to the balloons themselves, we hear how dummies were loaded up, to be dropped from great heights to study the effect of high-altitude freefall on the human body. These dummies were a relatively new phenomenon, not widely known, and designed to mirror a human body in size, appearance, and weight. Of those who claim to have seen the bodies recovered at Roswell, none of them got a very good look at them. However, they almost unanimously described the creatures as gray, hairless, and with strange facial features, all of which could also describe the crash dummies being used by the Air Force at the time. The dummies were also known to lose their arms and legs upon impact, which would explain why so many purported witnesses described the bodies they saw as small in stature. Lastly, Moore references the black box Cabot says they recovered, saying it resembled a radio radiosonde, the small instrument package usually suspended below weather balloons to measure pressure, temperature, and humidity. The final report that is produced is over 1,000 pages long. In it, Investigators consider a range of possibilities as to the source of the debris. Everything from a downed army craft or a misfired missile, all the way through to an alien spacecraft. In the end, the GAO investigators side with Project Mogul as the most likely explanation. Professor Moore says that in his professional opinion, what Sheridan Cavett describes is indeed one of the balloons his team launched back in 1947. — The findings are met with mistrust and criticism from ufologists. But as far as the government is concerned, the matter is closed. However, Walter Hout, omitted from those the investigators spoke to, has other ideas. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McKrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Up until his death in 2005, the furthest how it has gone is to give his opinion that the Roswell debris was not of this world. He has categorically denied witnessing anything personally. His affidavit is nothing short of a complete U-turn. Through his deathbed confession, we now have an entirely different version of what Hout believes happened all those years ago. It's July 8th, 1947. Walter Hout arrives at 7.30 a.m. for the staff meeting at Roswell Army Airfield. The usual attendees are there, Colonel Blanchard, Major Jesse Marcel, Captain Sheridan Cabot, plus an assortment of others. The person who catches his eye is Brigadier General Roger Ramey, Blanchard's commanding officer. There's an atmosphere, a weight to the air that's almost tangible. Hout sits in silence as Marcel and Cabot brief the room on an extensive debris field in Lincoln County, 75 miles northwest. A second site is mentioned, 40 miles to the north. Hout heard all this the previous day, along with rumors of it being an alien spacecraft. What he isn't prepared for is when pieces of the debris are handed around the room. It's unlike anything he has ever seen. It's a metal foil of sorts, paper-thin but incredibly strong. There's also long, thin support beams with unusual markings adorning the length of them. Nobody in the room, all high-ranking military personnel, is able to identify a single piece as anything they have seen before. Discussion turns to how to handle this. General Ramey proposes to focus attention on the first crash site, diverting attention away from the second, closer one he believes to be a more important find. The meeting draws to a close, everyone is sworn to secrecy, and Hout wanders back to his office in a daze. Two hours later, he sits staring out of the window, trying to make sense of what he has seen and heard. When his phone rings, it's Colonel Blanchard who orders Hout to grab a pen and starts dictating. Blanchard insists that it's reproduced word for word as a press release. It will confirm that they have pieces of a flying disc currently en route to Fort Worth. Hout does as he's told, releasing the statement to radio stations and newspapers. It doesn't take long before calls flood in from around the world, clamoring for more information about the historic find. Blanchard pops his head around the door a few hours later. He and Hout have a bond closer than most on the base. They serve together for some time, and Hout sees the older man as a mentor and friend as well as commanding officer. Blanchard suggests to Hout that he take the rest of the day off while the excitement levels out. Hout gratefully accepts, snatching up his jacket and car keys. Blanchard walks out with him, but to Hout's surprise, Blanchard steers him away from the parking lot and towards Building 84, usually a B-29 hangar. As they approach, Hout frowns, seeing armed guards stationed at either side of the hangar door. It's only as he follows Blanchard inside that he understands the need for such measures. The cavernous hangar is an echo chamber. Men scurry around like worker bees, and Hout's jaw drops as he realizes what he's looking at. The object is the one the officers spoke of that comes from the second, less public site north of the city. The lighting isn't great, but it looks metallic, around 12 to 15 feet in length, a little less in width than six feet high. He strains to make out more detail, but there's nothing that looks familiar. Nothing resembling wings, landing gear, windows, or tail section. Hout and Blanchard stand in silence, soaking in the sight before them. It's a full minute before Hout turns to look at his commanding officer, but something else catches his eye before he does. Off to one side, he sees what looks like canvas tarpaulins, draped over what he realizes with growing horror and fascination, our bodies. Not soldiers, though, too small. No bigger than a 10-year-old child. While he can't make out facial detail, the heads that stick out of the tarps are large, way too pronounced to be children. Whoever they are, whatever they are, it's enough to make even a seasoned soldier's head spin. Blanchard ushers him back outside, telling him they've set up a temporary morgue to take care of the bodies. He assures Hout that none of the wreckage is hot, meaning radioactive, so no need to worry. The days that follow are the most surreal of Hout's life. First, the revelation out of Fort Worth that the debris was now being called a weather balloon. How they can say this after what Hout has witnessed is beyond him. The army sucks all the oxygen from the story. The second press release goes out with a new story. Men on the base are ordered not to talk about it, even with each other. The only man Hout finds who will go against that order is Jesse Marcel, and even then, only once in his 1980 interview. What Marcel shares then is very different to the official stance from back in 1947 and Hout captures its essence in his affidavit. Hout's statement claims that the box Marcel carried into General Ramey's office included the beam he had shown his son the previous night, marked with hieroglyphic-like symbols. Marcel told Hout that he placed the box on Ramey's desk, but before he could say anything, the general ushered him into an adjoining room, asking him to point out on a map where the debris had been found. Marcel obliged, and they returned to the office, only for him to see that the box he had left behind was gone. Some other form of wreckage had been substituted in its place. A reporter was ushered into the room and proceeded to take pictures of Marcel, crouching by the assortment of pieces laid out on the floor. One such picture has Marcel holding what appeared to be a sheet of foil-like material, looking far from comfortable, staring off camera at General Ramey. Hout stated that Marcel seemed upset as he shared what happened in Fort Worth, but the two men never spoke of it again. Hout goes on to say that later that same week, Blanchard let him travel north to the second crash site. The young first lieutenant spent a day as part of a military cleanup crew, sifting through Scrubland, picking up whatever pieces he could find. He signed off the affidavit with a statement saying he had received no money or anything of value in exchange for his words, and that it is the truth to the best of his recollection. His affidavit focused mainly on a period of just two days that covered the key events he was party to. His loyalty to Blanchard was as strong as that to his country, maybe even stronger. When the colonel gave him strict instructions never to speak of what he had seen, he followed orders, buried it deep down, waiting for a time, over 50 years later, when he would find a way to share what he knew in a way that he can live with. After those two days his statement covered, the story sank below the surface, a slow shipwreck waiting to reemerge. Hout got on with his life, focused on his family, his wife, and two-month-old daughter. He leaves the army less than a year after the incident, handing his notice on April 1st, 1948. Nothing to do with what he witnessed, till later say. Simple priorities. Staying would have meant a transfer to Fort Worth, and he wants to raise his daughter, Julie, right here in Roswell. Time, and the world, simply move on. So many of those who were there in Roswell on that fateful day in 1947 have passed away now, some taking their stories to the grave, others sharing towards the end. It's so far in the past that even their children have grown old, some even dying. Julie Schuster, who broke the silence by unsealing her father Walter Hout's controversial affidavit, is one of those. Passing away in 2015. Time is the great stealer of secrets, and it seems unlikely now that we'll get any closer to the truth about what happened near Roswell in 1947. What we do know is that even now, people's fascination with it still runs strong. In recent polls, 65% 65% of Americans said they believe in the existence of intelligent alien life forms somewhere in the universe. 40% say that the countless sightings over the years were extraterrestrial crafts. As recently as 2017, the New York Times broke the story of the Pentagon's long secret unit investigating unidentified flying objects, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Proof that despite their official verdict of the Roswell events being simply attributed to Project Mogul, the government takes UFO sightings seriously enough to investigate. The truth is most definitely out there. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Harvey Richardson, a quiet, unassuming man. He has been many things over the years, a waiter, a bartender, even a trainee librarian. But there's one part of his life he has kept hidden from those around him. Something that could be the key to solving a murder that happened decades earlier. One that police struck out with zero suspects, where a young mother was brutally murdered on the way home to her young family. After 38 years of painful silence, could a search of Richardson's house shed light on what happened to Lorraine Jacob all those years ago? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from ParCast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for ParCast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Derek Jennings. Sound design by Matthias Torresolé. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dori McCauley.